Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you about this man. Okay? Little quiz. Who is this man? Who is that? Some old guy. Yeah, he's dead, in fact. All right. Maybe play some 20 questions or something. Uh, This man uh, lived in the 1700s. This man um, had a famous mother. He's a Wesley. This is Charles Wesley, is, is who this is. And uh, he was born in 1707 into a pastor's family. Do you remember how many kids were in his family? Uh, a little more. More. Gieschel's wiped you totally off the map. <laughs> 19 children. And all the mothers said, whew. Um, amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, nine of them, however, died in infancy. So there were about 10 of them. And Charles was the 18th child, but really basically had uh, just one after him. So there were eight in front of him, and then him, and one after him. His mother was a, a godly woman. Her name was. Susanna Wesley. Books have been written about her. In fact, I have a, a book on my shelf uh, about her. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. I have been to her burial place. Such a famous woman she is uh, in Bunhill Fields in London. Been there on a couple of occasions. When we've been to London, that's where we've gone because it's such a, uh, a picture. Of John Bunyan is buried there. Daniel Defoe is there. John Onion. John Owen. Isaac Watts is there. Just it's a and and Susanna Wesley is kind of off. I don't think I've ever seen her too, but I know like where she is. She was on a map of of where her body lays. But she um, had a profound influence spiritually upon Charles. Just reading the Bible to him at home, teaching him the Scripture, helping him to memorize passages, working through catechisms. Charles was a very smart child, even receiving an academic scholarship. Uh, to attend primary school and, and high school, I, I believe. Charles was a very religious child. He, um, he embraced Jesus, pursued ministry himself. Um, in fact, he trained at Oxford in, um, in ancient languages, just knowing that that's going to prepare him for, uh, um, for a ministry as well. He was so serious about his faith when he was in Oxford that he he, call, he gathered together some other men for an accountability group that later became known as the Holy Club. Exactly right. And they met together for accountability. Their aim was to serve God every hour of every day. They dedicated daily time for Bible reading and, and prayer. They, they fasted twice a week, celebrated the Lord's Supper several times a week. Committed to loving those in need. They, they took food to the poor. They visited prisoners. They, they taught orphans to read. And, and Charles Wesley really was the leader of this group. He graduated in 1732 with a master's degree in classical languages and literature. And for three years then after that, he trained for ministry being ordained in 1735 for the ministry. And, and no sooner was he set apart for the ministry. His first assignment was an evangelistic mission in America. So he and his brother John boarded a ship from England and uh, took six weeks or so to sail across the Atlantic Ocean to, to Georgia. And, and on a, they, they went on the, on the journey. They were as diligent as they could in their pursuit of God, rising early. There's not a lot to do on a ship in those days. They rose early. They, they prayed. They read scriptures, daily worship with people on the ship who were interested, actively ministering to others, particularly children, holding classes for them. As they could. His time in Georgia, however, was short and difficult. The journey across the Atlantic took six weeks, and he was in Georgia less than five months, and then he returned home. Just kind of an unsuccessful sort of ministry that he had there, just facing a lot of accusations against him. It was really difficult. Um, but little did Charles Wesley realize that throughout this whole religious activity, he was unconverted. He was not a Christian. He was ordained for the ministry. He was preaching the Bible. He was teaching others the way of the Lord, yet he himself was not trusting in the Lord. Um, Romans 10, 2 and 3 describe him well. 
Paul writes to the Jews, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that's exactly what Charles Wesley was. He, he was zealous for God. He traveled across the ocean to evangelize those in the new world. Yet he was ignorant of the righteousness of God. He trusted in his own righteousness, not that of another. He sought to establish his, his own righteousness, trusting in his own zeal, living a God-honoring life through the power of his own flesh. And once he came back to England, he continued his ministry, teaching others, preaching to others, visiting others. Yet he himself was, self was lost, and he continued on for over a year. But then he began to have some conversations and some discussions with people. And the discussions contained about the new birth and, and, and about conversion. And, and if you read his journal, you can um, he shares in his journal about eight conversations in the span of six months or so leading up to uh, 1738. And in February 1738, he met this man, Peter Bowler. Is that how you say it in German, the umlaut there, Bowler? Bueller. Bueller? Bueller? No, not Bueller. Huh. I'm going to say Bowler. <laughs> That's better than Bueller. That's better than, how do you say it, Dirk? Bueller. We're going to say Bowler, all right? That's what we're going to do. But Peter Bowler... He was a devout believer in Jesus. And one day, Wesley came down with a bad toothache. And his pain was so severe that, that he was feverish and he thought he would die. I mean, that's how it was back in those days. Without Novocaine, you get a toothache, you get a fever, you get sick, and you die. Well, anyway, he called Mr. Bowler and, and asked him to pray. And uh, Bowler asked Wesley, do you hope to be saved? And Wesley said, Yes. And Bowler then asked him, for what reason do you hope it? Listen to Wesley's reply. He says, because I've used my best endeavors to serve God. In other words, I've tried my hardest to serve God. Therefore, I have a hope to be saved. And for those of you who know the gospel, you know that that's like the wrong answer. But it just reveals his, his heart. And, and Bowler, Peter Bowler merely shook his head and said no more. He was like, and Wesley records his thoughts in his journal. He said this. He says, I thought him to be very uncharitable, saying in his heart, what, are not my endeavors a sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. Well, Wesley did recover. And a, a few months later, he was out of town and they came back into town. And he wanted to speak to his friend again. And a week after coming in town, he, he fell ill again with a pain in his side and with a fever. And once again, Bowler came to his bedside of Wesley, and, and Wesley writes this about his visit. He said, he stood by my bedside and prayed over me that now, at last, I might see the divine intention in this and my late illness. And I immediately thought it might be said that I should again consider his doctrine of faith examining myself whether I was in the faith, and if not, never cease seeking and longing for it until I attained it. And throughout his sickness, if you read his journal, he's just longing for salvation. He's longing for the faith to, to believe in just in Christ's righteousness alone and not in his own works and endeavors. He wrote how he was unconverted. He said this on May 1st, 1738, I felt a faint longing for faith and could pray for nothing else. May 11th, 1738, I confessed my unbelief and my want of forgiveness. That is, right, his lack of forgiveness. And May 13th, 1738, I waked without Christ, yet still desirous of finding him. You just see his yearning and longing to understand and be converted. Less than a month later, May 17th, 1738, Wesley was reading Luther's commentary to Galatians. He was thinking long and hard about, about what Paul wrote in Galatians about his justification by faith. And Wesley wrote this, I spent some hours this evening in private with Martin Luther, which, by the way, you can commune with people through books. And so he considered himself, he was with Martin Luther. He said, it was greatly blessed to me, especially his conclusion in the second chapter, 
Wesley wrote, I labored, I, I waited, I prayed to feel who loved me and gave himself up for me. The emphasis was upon the me, like he didn't have this personal faith. He knew all about Jesus. He knew the Bible. He was taught by his mother, but it wasn't personal to him at all. The next day, May 18, 1739, Wesley confessed his helplessness to the Lord. And he thought himself willing to die if he could but believe and trust in Christ alone. Yet he said, I could not die till I did believe and I earnestly desired it. And then May 21st, 1738, Charles Wesley had what he called his own day of Pentecost. Of course, you know what that means, right? He was sick in bed. Some friends came to be with him because it was a Sunday morning and they had no Zoom church back in those days. He couldn't just turn on the, the video. He was he had some friends come and they, they sang with him and prayed with him. And a, a certain Mrs. Musgrave, I looked for a picture on the internet, can't find her at all, said to him, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and believe and thou shalt be healed of all thy infirmities. And Wesley wrote, the word struck me to the heart. Still, I felt a violent opposition and reluctance to believe, yet still the Spirit of God strove with my own and the evil spirit till by degrees he chased away the darkness of my unbelief. I now found myself convinced. I knew not how nor when. I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith I stood. I went to bed still sensible of my own weakness, yet confident of Christ's protection over me. And the next Monday on, the next day was Monday morning, he read Psalm 107. It was precious to him. If you know anything about Psalm 107, it's a, it's a series of four different testimonies of people who were wayward and, and lost, and they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord saved them out of their distress. And on Tuesday morning, he began to write a hymn upon occasion of his conversion, but was persuaded to break off for fear of pride. Though it wasn't the hymn he wrote at the time, it may well have been. He could have written, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That was his testimony. That could have been the song that he could have written. He wrote that later in his life, but that is a conversion hymn. And at the age of 31, the direction of Wesley's life was forever changed that day. He would spend the next 40 years of his life preaching and teaching faith in the Lord Jesus. Not your own righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus alone. He'd write more than 6,000 hymns. 16 of which are in our hymnals. Can, can you think of any other na- hymns that Charles Wesley wrote? And can it be that I should gain? Any come to mind at all? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Yep. My great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King. And triumph of His ways, I think is what it is. <clears throat> any others that you can think of Charles Wesley writing? If not, I'll just tell you a few. Um, come thou long expected Jesus. He wrote, Hark the herald angels sing. He wrote, Christ the Lord is risen today. Rejoice the Lord is King. He wrote, Love divine, all loves excelling. Jesus lover of my soul. Soldiers of Christ arise. Just those are our familiar ones that he wrote. But, but he came on, once he came to faith in Christ, just the Lord used him in a mighty way, and he is one of the heroes of Christian history. Now, yes, yeah, so see why did you tell us that story? I told you that story because the story of Charles Wesley is almost exactly the story we see of a man named Apollos in our text this morning. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. You can open in your Bibles with me there. 
as we just continue our our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Acts, we come here to the story of, of Apollos. Acts 18, 24 through 28. Um, we're going to see Apollos, this um, intelligent and eloquent man, one with a, a fervent spirit, mighty in the Scriptures. All those things were Charles Wesley before his conversion. Intelligent, eloquent, fervent, right, forming the Holy Club, mighty in the Scriptures. He knew the Bible, was trained very young to pursue the Lord, was in a ministry family. Apollos preached repentance and the need of righteous living, exactly like Charles Wesley would have done both to himself and to others. Yet Apollos was, was lost, not trusting in the righteousness of Christ until a man and a woman came into his life to show him the way of God more accurately. And he believed in Jesus, the Messiah, and he has then become a hero of biblical history. So let, let's read his story. Acts chapter 18, 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia... The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. My message this morning is entitled, Mighty in the Scriptures. It comes from the end of verse 24, which the ESV translates, that he was competent in the scriptures. But the old King James says, mighty in the scriptures, he was. And the name draws me back to the story of John Broadus. In the last lecture that he ever delivered to his students, John Broadus was one of the founders of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville in 1859. He eventually would become the second president. He loved, he was a great preacher, loved teaching preachers. Spurgeon even said of Broadus that he was the greatest of the living preachers. It's an amazing compliment from Spurgeon. Another church historian, Alfred Henry Newman, called Broadus, quote, perhaps the greatest preacher the Baptists have ever produced. And I would say, no, Charles Spurgeon definitely was, but that just puts him up there in terms of a gifted preacher. He wrote a classic book on preaching called, entitled On the Preparation and Delivery of Sermons, which I read in seminary, and many seminarians still today are reading. It's still used some 150 years after its publication. Anyway, after this man had, had been in ministry for so long, and he pastored churches, and he was teaching his students at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, it, it came time for his last lecture, when he was going to uh, deliver his last teaching lecture ever. And, and one, of the, um, one of those present, one of the students present, recorded his final words, Broadus said this, Young gentlemen, if this were the last time I should ever be permitted to address you, I would feel amply repaid for consuming the whole hour endeavoring to impress upon you these two things. True piety and like Apollos to be men mighty in the Scriptures. And uh, this student said that Broadus paused, stood for a, a moment. He said his eye, his piercing eye fixed upon us, repeated over and over in a slow but wonderfully impressive style. Mighty in the Scriptures. Mighty in the Scriptures. Mighty in the Scriptures. Mighty in the Scriptures. Training men for ministry, there's no better drum to bang than that. Mighty in the Scriptures. And the student that remembered the scene said, that picture of him as he stood there at that moment can never be obliterated from my mind. And, and maybe for me, it's, it's just been impressed upon my mind as well. I, I had the opportunity to take a preaching class from a man named David Larson, who uh, Darren Wiebe knows. And uh, Gary and Nancy, you know him too. Right? Darren calls him the most intelligent man you've ever met before. It, an unbelievable memory. Um, he knew people's names. Um, 
He knew the scriptures super well, preached from hardly a note at all. And, and I had the opportunity to sit in this class as I, I took a preaching class at, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School where he, preached, pre, he taught preaching for decades. He was the closest embodiment that I've ever tasted of Charles Spurgeon. Just a, a rotund voice and just a, a theatrical sort of uh, presence that he just has. And so I remember Darren, you said, he said, good morning, Mr. Weeby, right? Something like that. And he just knew, and he was powerful in the scriptures. And, and I can't remember exactly whether he was telling the story of John Broadus or whether it was his last lecture to us in uh, our classroom. But I, I sense it was our last lecture after a semester long of studying preaching with him. He repeated, as only Dr. Larson could, mighty in the Scriptures. Mighty in the Scriptures. Mighty in the Scriptures. So you go out to preach, be mighty in the Scriptures. I mean, just elaborating on that. And, and I, I remember that message to today. The same impact that this man who was sitting in John Broadus' classroom had. I, I just... I just hear his voice again. And he's, he's dead now, but his voice still lives in my ears. Mighty in the Scriptures. What I've sought to do in my ministry as well, to be mighty in the Scriptures. That is the title of my message this morning. This is my first point. It's mighty in the Scriptures. That's what Paul, Apollos was. He was mighty in the Scriptures. We see that in verse 24 with some other things. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, or mighty in the Scriptures. Now, for the last few months, uh, we've been working our way through Acts. We've been tracing Paul's travels on a map. I trust that this map is really familiar to you. You know what it's about. When Paul began in Antioch, he goes through Galatia, he goes up to Macedonia, down through Achaia, with a quick stop in Ephesus, and then he comes back to Antioch by way of Jerusalem. Well, the story of our text today sort of pans away from Paul's life. Paul was in Ephesus. He's going back home. But it says, let's, let's stop and ponder what was taking place in Ephesus, where Apollos was preaching the Scriptures. Now, Apollos wasn't a native of Ephesus. It says here in verse 24 that he is from Alexandria. Do you see on the map where Alexandria is? Kids, you see where on the map where Alexandria is? It's down south here, right? Right, just on, on northern... Egypt, right there by the Nile. Alexandria was an important city in the ancient world. Do you know why? Do you know anything about Alexandria? There's a library there. Who said that? Yeah, there was a library there. We'll get that second, okay? But first, there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I'm not going to have you name them all, but the wonder of the ancient world that was in Alexandria was a a lighthouse. Here is a, an artistic uh, rendering of what it was. We have some people who saw it and described it and wrote down uh, what it was. It was, it was uh, built during the reign of Ptolemy II, Philadelphia, uh, around 250 BC. Um, estimates measure the lighthouse over 300 feet tall, making it one of the tallest man-made structures in the ancient world. It stood for a thousand years until uh, several earthquakes destroyed it over that time. Here's another picture of it, and it's, it's apex. There was a, a mirror which reflected sunlight during the day, and uh, they lit a fire on top of that by night so that travelers in Alexandria could navigate the, the shoreline. Um, existing Roman coins show a, a statue on top of the lighthouse. Maybe it's a statue of Poseidon or, or Zeus. We we don't exactly know, but there's a, a statue of a Greek god up at the tower of that. Surely it was a, a sight to behold. Now, why, why do I mention that? I, I mention that just because of the prominence of Alexandria in the ancient world. It was, a, it was a city and a town of culture and achievement. It was a place of learning. And Heidi, you mentioned that there was a library there. And some estimates are up to half a million volumes were in that library. Half a million scrolls, handwritten, half a million, all categorized. If you wanted to learn, you go to the library in Alexandria, you could learn there. It's remarkable how much was there. And all that to say, this is the home of Apollos. Apollos is a, a cultured man. He was an educated man. He, he learned the Scriptures. Um, as verse 25 says, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. 
He was mighty in the Scriptures. He, 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 he was learned. He knew that. Verse 24 says he was an eloquent man. That means he didn't stutter or stammer in his speech. You know, I'm often amazed when I watch some sports telecast or with some news commentary, right? The, how smooth the commentators are. Like they rarely stumble on their words. They, they don't say um or uh. They speak in complete sentences, never stopping and being interrupted. I, I can't do that. I've tried to stand before a, um, a camera like many YouTubers stand, and they just speak flawlessly in a way that I can't. News reporters or, or sometimes preachers, eloquent, right, without starting and stopping sentences, saying the right words. I mean, I stumble over my words often, saying, thinking in my mind one word, but then saying another. And sometimes I've gone back even to listen to a, a sermon, and I'm like, I missed up that word. I missed up that word. But you know what I mean, so you're gracious. But, but there are people who don't stumble on their words. That was Apollos, eloquent man and an eloquent preacher. Verse 25 describes him more. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. That has been instructed the, the Scriptures. He, being a Jew, of course, right, from youth probably been instructed in the Scriptures. And he was fervent in spirit. He was zealous about the truth of God. And he was an accurate teacher of the Scriptures. He taught, spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. And this shows how much he was like Charles Wesley. Apollos is educated, like Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was educated like Apollos. Charles Wesley was instructed in the Scriptures, just like Apollos was. Charles Wesley was zealous for the ways of God, like Apollos was. And Charles Wesley was ignorant of the ways of Jesus, just like Apollos was. But Apollos, from what he knew, he taught accurately. He didn't know fully about Jesus. In that sense, he was without excuse. He was like an Old Testament saint who just hadn't heard the message of the Messiah yet. Charles Wesley, not so, because he knew the message of the New Testament, but didn't believe it. But Apollos was only familiar with the baptism of John. You remember the Bapti- John the Baptist? You remember what he taught? His message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was the fulfillment of the one prophesied in Malachi and in Isaiah. The one prophesied who had come before the Messiah came to prepare the way of the Lord, crying in the wilderness, make straight His paths. John the Baptist called people back to return to the Lord so that when the Messiah came, everything would all be ready. He called people to walk in righteousness. You read that in Luke chapter 3 when, when people come up to... Um, to John the Baptist and ask him how to leave. He's always telling them, live in the righteous way. Live in the righteous way. He commanded people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And his baptism was a sign of repentance. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Right? You repent and then the, the water becomes a symbol of your, your cleansing. And John's baptism, of course, is a precursor to Christian baptism. Christians believe in Jesus They're baptized in water. It's an expression of the repentance of sins. And when Pharisees tried to come to John for baptism, he turned them away. He said, you brood of vipers. He said, bring forth fruit in keeping the repentance. He saw them and he rebuked them because their heart was not right with the Lord. And I would suspect the preaching of Apollos was much the same. His message was, repent. Turn to the Lord. Walk in His ways. And I'd suspect that his preaching would have included some sort of hope in the Messiah because we read in verse 25 that he spoke and taught accurately concerning Jesus. And concerning the Messiah, he, he taught accurately, but he knew only the baptism of John. And so, in other words, Apollos in his preaching and teaching was, was incomplete. Um, in fact, that's, that's the context here of Acts chapter 18, and we'll see that even next week. A kind of a similar theme next week is going to get us kind of the, the same thing. Acts is a period of transition, transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And here you had some Old Covenant believers who didn't understand fully Jesus. But when they, when they heard of Jesus, then they embraced him. And we see this instance here um, with Apollos, and next week we're going to see some disciples of John Next week, as we see in Ephesus, the same issue, because Acts is this transition, but Apollos didn't just know the particulars of Jesus. He didn't know his atoning death upon the cross, dying for our sins, that we might gain righteousness through faith alone. And I suspect Charles Wesley, before he was converted, when he went over to America, was preaching much like John the Baptist. Repent! Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Walk in His ways. But that's about all that 
Charles Wesley was preaching. Walk in the ways of God. Because that was his own hope. His own hope was he was walking in the ways of God. Apart from Christ. Wesley's preaching was incomplete as well. He didn't preach faith in the righteousness of Jesus, right? Trusting that Jesus' righteousness by faith is imputed to us. Rather, he preached his own righteousness, preached his own effort. Here's to use his word, endeavors. His own work and his own effort. And one way that you might say that Apollos and John Wesley about this is that they were mighty in the Scriptures, but they were missing the Savior. And we see this in, in verse 26, really my, my second point. And although Apollos and Charles Wesley were mighty in the Scriptures, they both were missing the Savior. Until, of course, a, a godly couple came into the life of Apollos and showed him a better way. We read about that couple in verse 26. He, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now see, the problem with Apollos wasn't in what he said. It's what he didn't say. We, we read in verse 25 that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he's, he's teaching rightly about Jesus and everything that the Old Testament prophesies about him. But we see in verse 26 that Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, explain the way of God, not just accurately, but more accurately, like, like filling out the picture of Jesus. And oh, to be a mouse on the wall when Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos, probably into their house, it's at a side, maybe into some room, whatever, and they spoke to him. I mean, the road to Emmaus would have loved to hear what Jesus said to the disciples, right? And right here, Priscilla and Aquila would have loved to hear what they told Apollos. Here's, here's like an imaginary thing that, that maybe they said. Said, Apollos, we so appreciate your, your preaching ministry. Obviously, right, the, the Lord has gifted you greatly. You're, you're a man of learning. You're a man of integrity. You're a capable preacher. You read the scriptures with clarity. You teach with passion. And you're always careful to be truthful in all that you say. We love your illustrations, your cross-references, your application, how you, how you match up scripture with scripture. You have obviously conquered the scripture. We love your boldness. You remind us of John the Baptist. In fact, we never heard John the Baptist preach, but in hearing you preach, we think we've heard John the Baptist preach. But, and we, we, we also detect that you're sensitive to John's ministry. He was a forerunner to the Messiah. And this Messiah is what we want to talk to you about. We want to, we want to talk to you about how Jesus is the Messiah. The scriptures foretold the Messiah would come, born of a virgin, born in, in Bethlehem. And the scriptures foretold the Messiah would do great miracles, opening the eyes of the blind and unstopping the ears of the deaf and healing the lame and, and opening the tongue of the mute that they might sing for joy. But of course, you know that from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Jesus did all of these things. Born the right place, born in the right manner. His life and his ministry, exactly what the scriptures said that he would be. But the scriptures also taught that the Messiah would, would do no wrong, yet be hated by men. Scriptures teach that Messiah would suffer bearing our sins in his body. And that's exactly what Jesus did in Jerusalem. Though declared innocent by Pontius Pilate, he was still condemned to death to die on a Roman cross. And on that cross, Jesus suffered for us. Apollos, you know, Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus did all of that. And see, he, he suffered in our place. He suffered to become our righteousness. And he proved it all by raising from the dead. The scripture prophesied that as well. Psalm 16 verse 10 said, um, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. And the holy body of Jesus did not see corruption because he was in the tomb for three days and then rose from the dead and then he ascended on high and now he's exalted at the right hand of God exactly as Psalm 110 foretold. And the resurrection from the dead demonstrates everything he said was true. And, and Apollos, we, we know that you didn't know these particulars about Jesus. You've not been around Jerusalem, we know that. You've not been around the disciples to hear that. But you're hearing it from us now. And if you want to teach the way of God in an even more accurate way, Apollos, we encourage you to preach Jesus as the Messiah. We encourage you to preach that, that we come to God not because of our own efforts, 
Not because of our own endeavors, but we come to God merely on the, the faith of Christ. On, on the merits of Jesus, simply by believing in Him. See, we're not saved by our works, Apollos. We're not saved by our efforts. We're not saved by our righteousness. We're saved by faith in Jesus, the Messiah who died for our sins. Listen, Apollos, we are your friends. We are your biggest supporters in your ministry, and we believe in you, and we trust that God has great things for you. So preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Apollos. That's my best attempt at what Priscilla and Aquila may have said to him. Bow. I think it went longer than that. My suspicion is probably several days and working through the scriptures and maybe Paulus would have said, well, what about this? Or what about this? And it gone back and forth and added more details and whatever. But however it was, the back and forth, by the end, we see that Apollos took their advice. Another great quality of Apollos, he was teachable. Look down at verse 28, the very last phrase. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, that phrase might like ring some, some bells to you. This is Paul's sermon. Paul always preached that Christ was Jesus. Acts 17, 2 and 3. Paul's in Thessalonica. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. It's exactly what Apollos did from the Scriptures. The Christ was Jesus. Okay, at this point, there's a huge application for us. Right? Maybe you're not preachers. Um, but, think about this. If Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures and missed the Savior, could it be perhaps there's some of you who are mighty in the Scriptures and you've missed your Savior? If Charles Wesley was mighty in the Scriptures but missed the Savior, could it be that some of you are mighty in the Scriptures and miss the Savior. You might come here to church every Sunday. You might read through the Bible every year. You might memorize passages, Scripture. Yet you can easily be one of those good churchmen. In prayer meeting today, right? We just, before we, we prayed, we, we considered the fighter verse, which was Proverbs chapter 6, something about, I've not memorized it yet, listen to advice and accept instruction from your parents. Um, consider follow after your parents' teaching. And so we just went around the room and just said, what, what kind of teaching did your parents give you? And, and several people talked about how their parents were saved late in life, but before they were there, they were good churchmen, thinking that going to church is what it's about. Thinking that just knowing the Bible and, and sitting and, and maybe giving and maybe serving the church is what it's about. They're like Charles Wesley, serving and, and, and ministering to others, but yet not embracing the, the life of Christ. Are you Apollos? Do you think that it's just about coming to church? Do you think it's just about effort? I mean, isn't that the theology of the world? If you try hard enough, right? Or if you have good intentions as long as you're trying? That was Charles Wesley. That may have been Apollos. That could be you. You may have your day of Pentecost today, or, or you may struggle like Charles Wesley did. I mean, he came back from America, began having these conversations about the new birth, and it was about six months, eight months, a year before he really finally closed with Christ, if you will. Really trusted in the righteousness of Jesus and not his own efforts and, and work. Does your Christianity consist of things you do only? Does your Christianity consist of what you believe? Well, reading through the Bible this year, we just finished John chapter 6 uh, last week, and the crowds were asking Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Well, like, right? If you want to be about works and you want to work your way to God, what must we do? And Jesus replied, this is the work of God. Do you remember what it says? Jesus said, this is the work of God that... Anyone know? There it is. You believe. John six twenty nine. This is the work of God that you believe in Him who was sent. You want to do the work of God, then believe and trust, not not in your own, but in Him. In other words, what must you do to be saved? It's a Philippian jailer, we learned that a while back in Acts chapter sixteen and verse thirty one. What must I do to be saved? He said, "Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved." 
Believe He came down from heaven to earth to save you from your sins. Not merely to persuade you to follow God. Not to persuade you to follow His actions. Not merely to convince you in the, the ways of God, but to grant you forgiveness by faith and trust in Him alone. It's the Gospel. And too many churchgoers in this world are trusting their own churchgoing and knowledge of the Bible. And I fear that could be some of us. Masked by your zeal. Masked by your passion and endeavors. But you're really trusting your own works. You're trusting your own goodness. Rather than trusting in Jesus. And let's pray if that's you this morning that may His Spirit come upon you and transform you into His image of His Son through faith and trust in Him. So church, believe that. And I say to the extent possible, be a Priscilla and Aquila and do what you can to influence others in that direction, whether it's leaders at this church, whether it's administration at some Christian school where you send your kids, whether it's some leader some Christian organization, some co-op you're involved in, some missions organization you're involved in, anything in the name of Jesus. Be Priscilla and Aquila that our Christian organizations might be thoroughly Christian and not John the Baptistic-ism which merely says, hey, we believe in Jesus and we're following Him and look at everything we're doing. And so many Christian organizations are like that. It's like social, social organizations with Jesus kind of tacked on rather than foundationally from the bottom being one that's trusting in the righteousness of Christ, not just what John the Baptist says, repent, live a good life, follow in the ways of God, and not fully believing what John the Baptist said because he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So bring the gospel to bear. Bring Christ crucified into the attention of the leaders of those Christian organizations because Christ crucified, quite frankly, is not on the minds of many leaders of Christian organizations. So you were justified by faith alone. If you have opportunity, be a Priscilla and Aquila. Now, if you are Priscilla and Aquila, take note of the care with which they came to Apollos with. They showed their love by correcting him Graciously. First of all, they took him aside. They didn't rebuke him publicly. They took him aside, did it in private somehow. And I believe that they spoke with him in such a way to win Apollos, not just to let the truth be known, but really to win him. That's why when, when I tried to put before you a conversation, I prefaced their talks by building Apollos up and affirming him whatever way they could, and then speaking to the issue at heart, and at the end, affirming every way that you're on, they were on his side. Because when people have come to speak with me with nothing but criticisms, they are super hard to hear. But when they come with an affirmation of me and my gifts and my intentions, my, whatever they have to make up, okay, just to, just to speak somewhat encouragingly of me, it's, it, it comes differently. I found their counsel easier to take. So don't get me wrong, correction is always difficult, but I think Priscilla and Aquila did in such a way that, that winning Apollos was their end in view. Not just winning the argument. So I do believe their words came with some encouragement. I would encourage you to do the same, whether you speak with your spouse or with your children or your coworker or someone in leadership of some Christian organization or even a secular organization. When you're trying to win people, win them with, with words, encouraging words, affirming words, and then point out the issue and back it up by your words of, of affirmation. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone, Proverbs 15, 25, 15. Notice also here the role of a wife. Priscilla is mentioned first here. In fact, most often in the Bible, Priscilla is mentioned here first. Now, in a, in a male-dominated society, that stands out. And I think that she was more outspoken, more gifted in the couple. That's what I think. She took the lead in that. I expect she did much of the talking with Apollos. And Apollos took her... Her, her talk. I, I would suspect she knew the scriptures well and, and played a large role in persuading him in private. Remember Charles Wesley, it was Mrs. Musgrave who really made the, the snapping influence in his life when he, she just commanded him in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and believe. And so women, right, you can have a crucial role in the life of a church. Uh, it may not be upfront preaching. But there's lots of ways that you can be a, a persuasive influence for sure, helping and directing even leaders of a church with your insight. 
Well, the words of Priscilla and Aquila prepared Apollos for some great ministry. And this is my third point this morning. We've seen Apollos mighty in the Scriptures. We've seen him missing the Savior. But then coming to understand embrace the Savior, he ministered to the saints in a, in a great way. Acts 18, 27, 28. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to, him, to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, these verses describe Apollos leaving Ephesus and going to Achaia. Now, we don't know how that happened or when that happened or the timing of it or or why or the circumstances. We just know that soon after Priscilla and Aquila talked to him, he left and went to Achaia. And Achaia, of course, is a church in Corinth, which is in Achaia. And we know from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that Apollos was there in Corinth and by the way, Paul, Apollos had a mighty ministry in Corinth. I mean, it's a little bit like Charles Wesley. After he was converted, his ministry was successful. The Lord prospered it greatly. And it may just be that in his unconversion in trying to minister to those in Georgia, that's why his ministry fell so flat. I would suspect that's probably the case. But, but here it is, Apollos with understanding Jesus and, and the Messiah and verse 28, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus, right, was right there to the ministering, as I said, to the saints, that is the believers, those who've trusted in the Lord. And, and from this, you, you see the fact that, um, Apollos was much more the pastor than the evangelist. Paul was totally evangelist, but Apollos here was more pastoral because he was ministering to the brothers who through grace had believed. But so mighty was his ministry in, uh, in Corinth that, that some preferred the ministry of Apollos over the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 13, Each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he said, that's not a good thing. <laughs> it's not good for people to be labeling themselves. I'm a follower of this person. I'm a follower of this person. I'm a follower of that person. And, Much of that happens today. I follow John MacArthur. I follow John Piper. I follow Matt Chandler. I could say some other names. I follow so-and-so who've fallen from ministry now. And are these big leaders we have easily fall? But worse than that, being a follower of a person and not Christ. Let's follow Christ. Let's follow Christ crucified. Sure, admire and and, and you heroes in the faith. And, and Piper and MacArthur and Chandler, they're heroes to me, for sure. But we're following Jesus. Right? We're not, not following them. And Paul rebuked them, saying, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, no, no. We're baptized in the name of Jesus, right? It's Jesus whom we follow. Our Savior, crucified for our sins, and we follow him by faith. And that's my, my third point, that Apollos was ministering to the, the saints he was the, the brothers in Ephesus wrote to him, commending him, and then he was ministering to the brothers. And it sees here that he, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Notice how people believe. Through grace they believed. Right? Is that what it says there at the end of uh, verse 27? When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Sal- salvation comes to us by God's initiative, when He brings His grace to us, grants us faith that we then believe. This is right here. Charles Wesley could have learned this lesson, by the way. Just a little side note if you know what I'm talking about. But salvation is all the work of God. It's all the work of God. And Apollos was there ministering to people who by grace had believed. And these were, were believers. And he was encouraging them by being an evangelist, going out. And powerfully refuting the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. But just as salvation is, is all the work of God, so also the church. It's all the work of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul again mentions uh, Apollos. He says this in verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, he says, Are you not merely being human? He says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? He said, servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Yes, 
preacher. You, you, you follow and you, and you learn and you, you come to faith through the words of others. But ultimately, it's God who gives. And, and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, continuing on, speaks about the church in Corinth. He says, I planted, ding, 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 Acts 18. Right? We saw that a couple weeks ago when Paul went into Corinth and he started this church and God said, uh, don't leave because I have many people in this city. And Paul was there. He said, I planted and Apollos, you remember what it says? I planted Apollos watered and there it is pastorally just watering the flock and things were growing and things were going well and he says this but god gave the growth it's god's grace through which we believe god causes the growth of the church and then he clarifies says he says so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. That is, neither me who planted the church, Paul, I, mighty Paul, I planted the church. Paul says, I'm nothing. This is Paulus who watered the church. He's nothing. God is the one who gives the growth. Let's understand that it's all God's grace. Our presence here is God's grace. It's all God's grace. And that's why, right, we enjoy His grace. We extend His glory, enjoying the grace of God that's come to us, that's granted us faith and repentance, showing who He was. And we who believe and trust and have found in Christ our righteousness, we are, we are there because of Him. So let us not be Christless in our ministries. Let us not be Christless in, uh, in being mighty in the Scriptures. Let us not miss the Savior. Let's minister to the saints in a right way. Fully embracing the gospel of Christ. The songs today, I'm not sure if you noticed them. All about Christ. Show us Christ. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. He's the cornerstone. Everything focused on Christ. And next week we'll, we'll do the same thing. We're going to see the same story played out next week. Different characters, a little bit different circumstance. We're going to find these Old Testament saints not understanding the belief in Jesus. They only knew about John. And so that's the, that's the theme last weekend, this week. And let's us make sure that we are more than just Johannine, John the Baptist type Christians. We need to be Christians thoroughly through and through, understanding that justification comes by faith alone, not by what we do. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would teach us the lesson of Apollos. When we have opportunities to speak, may we speak like Paul did. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified that we might be like Apollos, the Christ is Jesus, that we might be like Charles Wesley after his conversion, knowing and trusting in Jesus that everything that he is, we are in him, right? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me to whom the death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. Let us be amazed with those words. Let those words dictate how we act as families and how we interact with other people and how it is that we interact as church and how it is that we carry about our, our ministries which we're involved in outside of this church. May we be thoroughly Christian, O oh God, in, in every way. May we not fall short like Apollos did, teaching accurately. May we be people who teach and preach and talk with others more accurately. May the people we're witnessing to now as we seek to be your witnesses hear not just about God and his glory and his goodness, but hear about the hope that there is in Jesus. Help me to be bold this week. Help all of us to be bold this week to bring up Jesus Christ and him crucified, that message that Apollos didn't quite understand at first, and then he did and he embraced it. So help us, O oh Lord, to be those who embrace the full message of the gospel here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.